0: I'm Dr. Scott Masson with Paideia today. Uh, today we have moved into the Victorian period and with an extraordinarily important writer, the great uh, Sir Alfred Lord Tennyson. Uh, Tennyson uh, and we're going to look at his Idols of the King today, uh, which is a magnificent work uh, covering one of the subjects of great interest to all English-speaking peoples, namely the reign of King Arthur, uh, and with it, one of the subject matters that uh, John, the great John Milton thought to be the subject of his epic poetry, at least early on in his career, as we know, and as we've covered on this podcast, Uh, he ended up looking at Paradise Lost, but he did think about this theme. Um, But I'm gonna hand over to Dr. Friesen, and you're gonna begin with a reading, are you not, Bill? No? No, I thought you were going to do something from in memoriam.
1: I'll follow along in a little bit with a poem from in memoriam when we come to that, and we'll come to that presently, to be sure.
0: Okay, but but Tennyson is a is a fascinating figure. He is uh, he is in the Victorian period, but right from the beginning in the Victorian period, and uh, he succeeds William Wordsworth as Poet Laureate, and so as such, he represents England and Englishness. And uh, Tennyson is really, uh, as far as literature in the Victorian period, he is really the guy. And it's uh, almost impossible to think of the Victorian period without thinking of Tennyson, for which reason it's mysterious to us that Tennyson is largely no longer read uh, and is no longer anthologized even in great uh, books, fat tomes cataloging the Victorian period. Um, But that's a subject that we'll get into, no doubt, as well. Uh, But Tennyson, I think, is a is a great writer, whether you read uh, his shorter poems like The Lady of Shalott or uh, Ulysses or any of the brief poems or in memoriam or today's poem Idols of the King, which is magnificent. And uh, that's the subject of our discussion today. Bill, do you have something to say here?
1: I do. Nowadays, I find that when with uh, even with English majors, when I ask first and second year students um, about their prior experience with Tennyson almost invariably, uh, I'm greeted with silence and blank stares they know nothing of the man which initially shocked me when I was teaching this material and As I explored further, I realized that to a large extent, this towering figure of Victorian literature and more broadly speaking, I think it's safe to say Victorian culture, has like so many of these other towering giants been quietly airbrushed out of existence, out of the collective memory of the academy and its students and even its professors, sadly, at times. If somebody does know something about Tennyson, and this is how I was taught Tennyson, sadly, initially when I was doing my undergraduate Thank goodness somebody did take the time to teach me about Tennyson. Uh, nevertheless, he is treated typically now uh, in a sort of a grotesque caricature uh, of the real man himself. It's a simplistic two-dimensional understanding of Lord Alfred Tennyson, Sir Lord Alfred Tennyson, I should say.
0: Yes.
1: Um, he has a rather heavy handle. Um, <laughs> it but um, it's it's you get this picture of this bewildered, hypocritical, pedantic self-important man who doesn't really have much psychological complexity, who is enormously sheltered, who is almost ridiculously idealistic about life and culture and art and the simple experience of being human. And so that was very much what I was initially taught as well by not one, but a couple of professors. And it's certainly if a student or a professor starts talking about Tennyson today at all, which almost never happens, then that is sort of the picture of the author that you get. When I began reading Tennyson, on the other hand, I encountered somebody I completely now did not expect. This, this was a completely strange individual. A, yes, by the way, Tennyson can get into preaching mode. Um, and you'll encounter this in some of his, uh, some of his poems. When he writes for England as poet laureate himself, he was made poet laureate in 1850. Um, he writes these relatively shallow pieces, and you're going to see this actually cropping up with a lot of later Victorian writers, especially the poets. Uh, and then this is a tendency in English literature that carries on into the first half of the 20th century, where they, essentially a single author is writing two very different species uh, of texts. One for more popular consumption and the other one which have stronger claims to uh, high art. So also with Tennyson. Tennyson is a bit of a pioneer on this front. So when he writes something famous like Charge of the Light Brigade, uh, if you go mining that for considerable aesthetic or psychological depth, you're going to struggle a bit, if I'm honest. Um, Whereas if you read a poem here from Idylls of the King, like the one that we're talking about today, Peleus and Aethora, you'll find that you're dealing with a completely different type of poem, the quantity and the quality of what you're looking at is a very, very different thing. (laughs) Um, So this is something that I enjoy doing with my students when I can introduce them to Tennyson. They're oftentimes very surprised that this man is as complex uh, as he is. And second of all, that the poetry is as complex as it can be. Oftentimes, they're very surprised, oftentimes delighted, oftentimes shocked because Tennyson writes about some extremely dark things, which again, surprises people. And it begs the wider question i'm not going to talk about it too long here today because i want to get to other matters but tennyson and all things victorian are denigrated in modern cultural approaches nowadays for the most part uh largely because of the work of writers uh just on the other side of world war one uh we haven't spoken much about the effect on literature or the effect on culture of world war one
0: no but it's as you, considerable uh, right
1: uh yeah as you know um it is pretty well literally impossible to overstate this devastating, let's just anachronistically impose a term on it, the PTSD of Western culture in the wake of World War One. Yeah, it's not just
0: English culture, it's it's European culture, it's Christendom, actually. that's it's a, it's a devastating repercussion. The repercussions, I would say, reverberate to this very day.
1: Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with you on this front. Um For a few years, you'll notice that Western literature just kind of goes quiet in 1919, 1920, 1921. It's because everyone is sitting around in shocked, stunned silence, like the survivors of some horrible traumatic accident that has killed everyone else around them. And only then do they slowly begin to find their voice. One of the individuals who found his voice was somebody who, unsurprisingly, who had actually not gone to the war, a a writer called Lytton Strachey. If you study modernism, you're bound to come across this man's name. I'm not going to talk about the man himself. It's no secret uh, amongst my students that I'm not fond of him as a person. Uh, But he wrote a text that was extremely influential. Um, It's not read directly much anymore, but it was read heavily in its day and had a massive influence on a lot of other writers and thinkers uh, in the 1920s, 1930s, even reaching right up into the 1940s, whereby Lytton Strachey, in a cold, cynical, but oftentimes highly artistic way, Um, engaged in character assassination of, as the title suggests, eminent Victorians, all these people who were held up as kind of paragons of Victorian virtue and what have you, were subtly and cynically um, debunked, deconstructed, exposed for uh, hypocrisy, if there's one adjective that a lot of people attach to the Victorian period, hypocrisy is oftentimes the adjective they reach for. And there's a reason for that, that's, that's not random. Now, is that because of
0: their hypocrisy, or is it because of Strachey's?
1: There certainly was hypocrisy amongst the Victorians, as you could identify hypocrisy, I think, in almost any age, including our own. Hmm. Um, It it, it was there. Um, But I would argue that a large part of the hypocrisy imposed upon great Victorian figures by people like Strachey, figures like Matthew Arnold, or Gordon, or or Cardinal Newman, um, or people like this. are not grounded in a realistic understanding of the writers, the the figures and the cultural context in which we encounter them. Uh, Another writer just recently, uh, one who I quite admire, George Steiner, wrote about the Victorian period and uh, Steiner has created an absolute firestorm by saying the unsayable. He said the Victorian period is the greatest golden age of English culture ever academics lost their minds at that assertion but unfortunately <laughs> steiner is a very systematic thinker and he yes, backed he is. up. Uh, is and his he's positions. not english no he's not english he's at oxford in fact i'm not even sure he's still alive
0: no no way. i don't think so and he he ended up in geneva i believe or zurich university of zurich in the end yeah
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> um but in any event uh, i found not just his book interesting but the response to it interesting as well why would this make people so crazy why would it make learned educated civilized people this completely apoplectic with rage incandescent with outrage? Mm. um well we've spent uh, nearly 100 years building up our loathing for the victorians so one of the upshots of this of course is like all these other big figures then uh, that we've talked about is that Tennyson initially was mentioned in the academy so that he could be held up, mocked, and ridiculed. If you actually read his poetry carefully, that's actually not an easy task to do. It's not very convenient to try to do that with Tennyson. And Browning, by the way, Robert Browning, the other great figure, I think, poetically, uh, yeah. in, in Victorian England. Yes. So, like, I, I prefer Tennyson myself, and I admire him somewhat more. Um, but then, as you and I were discussing before the podcast, increasingly, because his, his poetry is of such high quality oftentimes, Um, He was simply left out of anthologies. He was left off of syllabuses. He has quietly vanished. Um, Before we were recording today on my own, I've got a lot of uh, literary anthologies laying around the house, obviously. And I decided to look at them by their era, Mm because I've got some that go back to the uh, late 50s, early 60s. And when I'm looking at the oldest ones, we've got in these anthologies, quite a big collection in the index of Tennyson work. And then I, as you move forward, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So that I've got a couple of modern anthologies right here, right now that talk about Victorian literature and Tennyson isn't mentioned once.
0: This is he, extraordinary. It's extraordinary.
1: Yes. I'm, I'm, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, I'm holding up and I'm going to name the guilty. This here <laughs> is the Broadview Anthology of Victorian Literature. It's got a teeny tiny little section on Tennyson. And this specializes in Victorian literature. It's anthologizing Victorian literature, not yeah. English literature. But this is typical. This is very typical.
0: So so there's a, c- a caricature of the Victorians, uh, which is the hypocrisy of the Victorians, the shallowness of Victorians. Uh, Steiner's retort is this is the great golden age of English culture, which I think at least has a claim. Um, I would have thought, and, and we were, again, when we were just talking off air beforehand, we said um, one of the things that interests me about the subject matter today, Arthur and his kingdom and so forth, uh, idylls of the king are about Arthur and his knights, is his choice of subject matter. He he dwells on this in, in various passages. So uh, I commonly teach a shorter work for my intro when I come to it and deal with uh, 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 what's his name? The Lady of Shalott, and so forth. But you can see that it it remains of interest to Tennyson, the Victoria uh, this Victorian uh, giant, the uh, interest in Arthur and his knights. Now, why would it be Arthur? Well, I, I said and mentioned at the outset that Milton was also interested in Arthur and his kingdom as a, a fit subject for an epic for for English for English speakers. Okay. Why would Tennyson choose that? Well, that's one reason. He could have chosen the Elizabethan period as well, a great age of English culture. But I would say the Elizabethan age is marked more by great culture rather than political ascendance. And in Tennyson's age, we have arguably got both. We certainly have political influence uh, without parallel. Um, It it literally is... um, rule Britannia and Ru- Britannia rules the waves and there is British culture around the globe in a way that is literally unprecedented. Um, and if we came to Conrad, uh, we would see in his heart of darkness, he's talking about that very thing and the uh, implications of that and how it compares and contrasts with that of past. Um, so that's the reason really is his context is, is that Britain of which he is now the poet laureate, of the United Kingdom uh, is in a golden age and so he's hearkening back to a period when Britain was also said to be in a golden age and he is wanting to look at that and use it as a backdrop for commenting on the present wherein its strengths lie but also wherein its weaknesses lie and I think that's what he does in Peleus and Edra and specifically in the, in, the, in the broader scope in the Idols of the King he's talking about the decline and fall of a great power
1: yeah this is one of the things that instills a degree of confidence in me about Victorian judgments is that at least since the middle of the century 1850 as I said is when he becomes poet laureate a lot of the writers are writing and thinking deeply and very importantly critically about Britain, the legacy of England, um, Britain's role in the world. It is uh, this is the height of the British Empire. Sun never sets on the British Empire, literally. Literally. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, so they're in, a, in an enormously important point in history, and many many of the greatest writers know it. Uh, Kipling knows it. Browning knows it. Hardy knows it. And Tennyson knows it. Yes. And one of the things that I really like about them is they think long and hard about not what they're getting right, necessarily, but what they might be getting wrong. Right. And uh, they're an extremely introspective, extremely critical bunch of writers without being, without being without the wearying stridency that we encounter. So no, often. there's also a moral courage, also seriousness
0: critique. about it as well. Right. There's a, it's, this is not juve, juvenile um, takes on it. This is adult. Um, yep. and serious this is how things genuinely come to fall and this is entirely plausible that it should do so and that it should do so again yes. uh, given given the universal human nature we've already talked about uh of which Englishmen are conscious at least they used to be conscious um when they had a christian understanding of human nature namely that it is good but fallen and prone to pride and further falls and degeneration and so forth. And that's what we have here.
1: Yeah, these are not the smug Victorians that people in 2021 typically think of when they reimagine it in television shows and movies and books and things of this sort. Um, They're not uh, typically not particularly pedantic. They are deeply introspective. And as you say, and this is one of the refreshing things about Tennyson, as it is with Samuel Johnson, you feel like you're involved in a cultural, artistic, and philosophical discussion with grown-ups for once. And uh, that can be a real sort of a balm to the soul uh, at darker times. Um, So Tennyson himself, let me talk very briefly about his biography, because it's, it's, Again, I don't like to make biography at the front and center when we're talking about literature, but we have to know a little bit about the man himself. He, he like Samuel Johnson, did not have a happy upbringing, a happy life. Things were pretty rough for the young Alfred Tennyson. Uh, he grew up with uh, 12 siblings, so an extremely large family. Um, and it was an incredibly, incredibly dysfunctional family, really dysfunctional. Um, One of his brothers was condemned for life to an insane asylum. Uh, Another one was a thoroughgoing opium junkie. A third one was so violent he would regularly get into physical altercations with Tennyson's father. Uh, Fist fights were a common thing as Tennyson was growing up. Um, He had to have him arrested. The father had to have him arrested at one point here. Uh, At another point, the father loaded up with guns and knives waiting to confront this violent son of his. Um, Luckily, that was forestalled by other individuals, cooler-headed individuals intervening. Um, But this was the stuff of everyday life for uh, young Alfred. Uh, His father, one George, uh, was also a man of a vast learning. His father was extremely learned, and he was extremely well-connected, and he was extremely wealthy in time. However... He was disinherited by his uh, his father in turn, Alfred's grandfather, not because he did anything wrong, but because the the grandfather simply liked another son better, had no problem playing favorites, and disinherited his eldest son, and tossed him into um, the church. And he, his uh, Alfred's father was an Anglican priest. and he was there extremely unhappily. Uh, The father uh, loathed the clergy. He loathed the Anglican Church. It's possible that he loathed Christianity. It's hard to say. Um, He was, again, a thoroughgoing alcoholic, drank all the time, as you might imagine, from the comportment I've been describing to you. Um, And so he had boundless contempt for a lot of the things that Alfred himself uh, Seem to have a lot of respect for and explored very very deeply the the life of faith and things like this and the nature of the church and the role of the church in in English society um say a bit more you...
0: say a bit more about that where did he where did Tennyson stand remember this is the Victorian period this is the period in which we see a great with uh again context this is the era of Darwin yep uh in the era of the higher criticism coming from Germany into English speaking countries and and at first being resisted and then embraced with an abandon which is almost breathtaking but a a departure from the christian faith without a doubt in the era how about tennyson
1: yeah um this gets contentious very quickly um a lot of people try to say that tennyson's faith was a faux faith because he was poet laureate there were certain expectations of him right he had to be official
0: that's part of the hypocrisy then
1: yeah exactly he he, uh, he uh, people go hunting through his work for hints of agnosticism atheism hypocrisy on on the the front of uh, spirituality and christianity and quite frankly when i hear quote-unquote evidence dragged up on this front it is usually inferential or just point blank logically wrong um also i find it striking that his defense of orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy, isn't just in what he called his newspaper newspaper verses like Charge for the Light Brigade and stuff like this. It also shows up in his more serious, more complex works like what we're talking about here today. And we know that Tennyson is not afraid to search areas which are dangerous and taboo. We're going to see that in the poem that we're talking about today, but also when uh, he writes his very famous uh, collection of poems, In Memoriam. Um, he goes edgy places, so he doesn't have a problem with that. He's not, he's not, not critiquing his Christianity because he's afraid to do so, because he's not afraid to, uh, to go after the big uh, edgy issues in other areas. So I find no reason for thinking that, um, that his faith was strong also, a lot of his conduct in later life, as we're going to see, um, accords well with that faith. You know, it's the old quotation, by their fruit, they shall be known. Well, let's have a look at the fruit of Tennyson's life, because like Johnson's life, that fruit is good. It's very good later in life. Um, what else shall I say about this? Oh, yeah. Because of his father's uh, connections, uh, Tennyson, who was smart and displayed his intelligence and his ability to learn at a young age. Uh, Was kind of a shoe in for Cambridge. And this was both good and bad initially, because one of the things a lot of people don't know about Tennyson, especially since he's a poet laureate and he's always giving public readings and things like this, is that he was painfully, almost dysfunctionally shy. Um, He stuttered a lot when he spoke to other people initially. He had trouble making eye contact with these people. He would break off conversations to get out of them as quickly as possible, even when it was only one or two people. Um, He seemed to be very, very socially dysfunctional at this level. However, uh, so Cambridge was extremely difficult for him uh, socially, and he didn't seem to want to get stuck in. On the upside, he showed a talent early on, not just for literature and poetry specifically, but also for philosophy, and then it turns out, debate. And this is going to be one of the hallmarks of the man's character. The man has certain deficits. He recognizes his deficits. And by hard, careful, intelligent work, he overcomes his deficits. So his social dysfunctionality was one of these things he overcame and he overcame them by becoming extremely good with philosophical debate. This also will change the nature of his poetry. Anybody who tries to read his poetry at a shallow level will be disappointed because some of these poems are enormously philosophically complex. And if you don't know your philosophy and your philosophical backgrounds, you're not going to get a lot out of some of these poems. But if you do have a strong grounding in philosophy and uh, its main talking points, a lot of these poems become extremely interesting at that level, too. So he gets past his social dysfunctionality. Um, another thing we should say about Tennyson is that he was an imposing figure, he was a large man. And one of the reasons people wanted him to do so many public readings wasn't simply because he was poet laureate. I think it's safe to say the most famous poet laureate of them all. Oh, yes. Uh, But he also had a deep, booming voice, uh, which was remarked upon by many different individuals. Mm. Uh, I have heard one garbled phonograph uh, uh, recording of him reading a poem, but the quality is so bad, it's really hard to make out exactly what the man sounded like. Um, what else do I want to say on this front here, cured of his shyness. Ooh. Um, he also made friends with an individual by the name of Arthur Hallman, mm-hmm. And, uh, he made friends with him at Cambridge when he was quite young and their friendship was one of the defining moments of his life. Uh, they became enormously good friends. Uh, Hallman would go on to marry Tennyson's sister. And then all of a sudden, in 1833, he died. Arthur Holman died. And this absolutely devastated Tennyson, um, sent him into a complete spiral for a while. And over the next, um, I think it was 17 years, uh, one of the ways he dealt with the trauma of that incident, uh, that sudden loss, was writing poetry, which would be uh, eventually gathered together in an anthology uh, entitled In Memoriam, one of the most, com- I, I would say, one of the most complex studies of loss and grief ever written. Um, it's, and, and it was widely, widely read. Tennyson was had tried to write poetry prior to 1850, and much of his poetry was absolutely roasted by the critics, sometimes with good reason. And this brings me to my second talking point with uh, the man himself. Yeah, the criticism stung Tennyson badly, badly, badly. He was really traumatized by this as well, as you might imagine from a socially um, awkward young man. But again, he didn't run from it. Uh, he, did, he resolved to deal with it. And one of the more more fascinating things about Tennyson is that we have his rough copies of his poetry. And I think it's safe to say that Tennyson is one of these writers um, who aren't immediately, they don't write immediately brilliant poetry. They edit their way to greatness. And this is very much the way that Tennyson would work. He would write it, then he would write it again, then he would write it again, and he would write it again. If you get um, the Norton anthology of literature, oftentimes they have a little collection of rough drafts at the end poetry and process i think they call it and tennyson's poems are almost invariably included in that because you can see the evolution of the poem um so this guy will find a way to make it work um very very interesting on this front however in memoriam comes out it's such a smash hit that on the uh, the basis of that he is made poet laureate of england a post that he holds for many 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 years It also brings him an income he didn't have previously, which allows him to marry um, Emily Selwood. And they had been kind of seeing each other and had been pseudo betrothed for about 14 years. But he refused on his principles to marry her because he could not properly support her in a manner he thought that she deserved. So this is, again, typical of the man's demeanor. Mm Um.
0: And a reflection on his early life and the way his family had functioned as well, right? Yeah,
1: he was very keen to have a high-functioning family, probably in in some part because he himself had not, and he knew the trauma and the drama of precisely that. Mm. Um, He has been since, uh, his his legacy since then um, has been oftentimes attacked. W.H. Auden, a poet I quite like and respect, uh, said of Auden, uh, quote, he knows melancholy better than anyone else and nothing else. That's it. He's a, he, he's a one-trick pony. Uh, and it's true. Tennyson's poetry is deep, rich, but melancholy and lonely. And uh, we're going to see that again in Peleus and Etera. There's a, There's several species of loneliness being fostered in the main character that are striking and interesting, I think. But we'll come to that presently. But T.S. Eliot, uh, who I also respect very much, said of Tennyson um, that exactly is my quotation here. Uh, It's not the intelligence of uh, his faith that impresses, but the quality of his doubt, which speaks again to uh, concerns of integrity, which I think are one of the hallmarks of uh, Tennyson's thinking, uh, Tennyson's approach to so many things um what else do i want to say about this oh yeah you mentioned an interesting point quite rightly the victorians become more interested in their arthurian legacy than many previous ages the romantic almost almost
0: all others actually it becomes an obsession yeah in a way it, it doesn't fit there's all there's no obvious link anymore in terms of i mean the medieval period is long in the past we're now in the age of the of the steam engine and yes you know the global empire so there's no connection per se, other than that of reverie, vague sense of, uh, I don't know, is it, is it a sense of nostalgia, uh, of something lost that needs, is necessary to sustain them in such difficult times, um, so, but a sense of rootlessness almost at the same yeah. time.
1: The Victorian age is, of course, uh, an industrial age, and uh, it's not a newly industrial age. I think a lot of uh, professors who teach the Victorian period try to teach that this is the great wave of in, uh, the Industrial Revolution. Uh, but you can point to the roots of that uh, prior to this in the, in the 18th century.
0: Sure, but sure. It,
1: does, it does come to a, a, an absolute height where it characterizes mm-hmm. everyday thought for the Victorians. And so this kind of disconnect from the land, this ruthlessness, uh, this being cut off, as you say, from, you know, the the, the good, clean, sensible, grounded, honorable England of old um, is something that is on a lot of Victorians' minds. A lot of them return to um, the medieval and they reimagine it Victorian style. And that's important to note because... A huge amount, I would argue, maybe even the majority of what we now think about when it comes to the high medieval period has gone very, very dramatically through the lens or is seen through the lens of the Victorians. You've got the paintings of the Rossetti's, of course, and people like that. There's a whole school of Arthurian painting in England that comes up at this time. You've got writers everywhere like Tennyson who are writing and rewriting the Victorian Or, sorry, the Arthurian legends and what have you. Uh, The Victorian period is a high point in Arthurian literature, a lot of people are surprised to discover. Uh, But the crowning jewel, I would argue, in Victorian Arthurian literature are are the idylls of the king. Uh, Tennyson has kind of hit the very top with that register. And you also mentioned that uh, it's in some, from some perspectives, it's a golden age. And I think that's correct. But you talked about another golden age a cultural golden age and a literary golden age in the english renaissance and i think that's correct too yeah and it's interesting to me that there are certain writers in that age also who become obsessed with the arthurian with arthurian literature edmund spencer springs immediately
0: most certainly and as i say even milton retains that obsession
1: yes and i think that's interesting that when the british are in something that might be conceived of as a golden age in certain ways they begin immediately reaching for things arthurian and i don't know what's behind that but i think that's an interesting question why is it that they tend to do that at those times um if i had more time in my day-to-day life maybe i would begin researching down these fronts and thinking about these fronts but i don't so it is what it is (laughs) (laughs) so the adeus comes out it's it's the great magnum opus in memoriam is not the magnum opus of Lord Alfred Tennyson, at least according to Lord Alfred Tennyson, it is the ideals of the king he works on it for the second half of his entire life and predictably, he edits and edits and edits and edits. Uh, First one comes uh, first edition uh, of these collected tales comes out in 1859 an expanded version comes out in 1874. Uh, The complete and authoritative version comes out in 1899. So Tennyson just can't leave it alone. And, wow. and that's a good thing for, for, for us as readers, because uh, Tennyson knows how to edit his poetry extremely
0: mm-hmm.
1: well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really all I want to talk about here when it comes to Tennyson himself. Uh, what, let's talk a little bit about source texts that he's drawing mm-hmm. upon. He talks, of course, you mentioned this before, he, he draws upon Mallory.
0: Mallory, yeah, uh, more Arthur and so forth and the whole. But I mean, this is in multiple languages, right? The story of Arthur and his knights. A, yes, it, and, yeah. and, and we talked about this in a previous podcast to some degree, where, where this, whether there actually was an Arthur where he resided, is he, uh, is he uh, in some sense part of uh, Provence, the Brit- Brittany there, is he a Welsh uh, monarch of some sort, is uh, where, where, I mean, and there are various uh, possibilities based just based on sources, even different suggestions there. Mallory certainly makes them English and and very much grounds it in English consciousness. Um, But there's a Welsh (laughs) uh, legendary source as well. Um, And and it's interesting to see what later writers do with those sources, which they know, and then speak back to them. And that in itself is also a fascinating study, the comparison between different takes on it.
1: Yeah, there's such a rich tapestry available to us when it comes to Arthurian literature that my students find it useful to, to break this into various strands. Where exactly did it all come from? As you mentioned, there are a great series of Welsh folk tales which predate the high medieval period. They predate chivalry, and courtly love, and, uh, and codes of honor and things of that sort. Um, these are rough sort of barbaric Welsh tales of Arthur and his war band they're not his knights they're his war band as you say there are fr- many celebrated french iterations of the arthurian uh, tradition from de trois and uh, maria france um you've got um a, a whole historical strand which contributes where you're getting the history of king arthur and his knights uh oftentimes with little concern for uh historical truth or accuracy uh, most significantly amongst these people are um, Geoffrey of Monmouth, of course, but you got others like Nennius and what have you. So there's a historical branch of these sorts of things. And then uh, other writers, as time goes by, feed in to this ever-growing... Build into the growing
0: thing. legend, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. And so the Victorians are not doing anything new. Uh, know mm-hmm. that the Victorians, like uh, writers in the Renaissance, like Spencer, what have you, we were not first and foremost concerned with historical veracity when they wrote these tales, not at all. Um, they wanted to get at certain motifs and thematic approaches to those motifs that they thought were timeless, pressing, were timeless and yet simultaneously pressingly important to their own age. And so that's kind of the, the, the two perfections they're trying to bring together as they articulate new Arthurian material. Mm-hmm. That's, I suspect, what Milton wanted to get at, and it's also, I suspect, what Tennyson wants to get at. And
0: Spencer.
1: And Spencer. So we don't, condemning Tennyson for twisting the tradition, it just doesn't make any sense. Mallory, um, who was a very...
0: That's a historicist judgment, right? When, in in our our strange now, at least in comparison to past ages, they would look upon our ways of looking at the past as bizarre
1: and, uh, crude, and crude, very
0: crude. And crude, and lacking in all wisdom and, and discernment.
1: Of, and subtlety.
0: And subtlety. It's a, So we want to get to the original text, and then somehow, if we had this Ur text, it would resolve all questions, and we would be able to go from there. But it, because of that fact that we are not sure what the original text is behind these texts, we are in a state of paralysis and can say nothing about anything. And so we can only live in the present moment detached from the past. Well, this is not only absurd, it's also uh, deleterious to all uh, progress going forward. But nonetheless, that's where we are.
1: Yeah, and if somebody does try to then, from that perspective, speak to concerns of the past, whether that be the historical past, the literary past, or things like this, um, because we're sundered from all sort of solid foundations, cultural Mm -hmm. foundations and reading practices and academic practices, Um, We tend to engage in wild speculation conspiracy theories it's you know this is the realm of the anti Stratfordians and stuff like this, you know we're not too far away from slapping on a tinfoil hat and making pronouncements. Um, (laughs) It's really quite depressing on bad days so, Um, but not so with Tennyson not so with Tennyson. Uh, We've also got other sources that are kind of factoring into this we have the fascinating there's a fascinating collection of Welsh. Mythological, supernatural, sort of folk tales known as the Mabinogion, um, which was edited uh, during the Victorian period by Lady Jane Grey. I want to say, but I could be getting that wrong. Um, and that po- that becomes enormously Isn't popular.
0: Elizabethan, is there another Lady Jane Grey? I mean, it could be.
1: Uh, there is one in the Renaissance period, but yeah. I, yeah. So don't quote me as to that. But the Mabinogian fascinating fascinating book to read if you get a chance um it's absolutely brilliant it was edited at this point in history and it was extremely popular amongst the victorians which is why i'm talking about it now it too exerts a powerful influence upon their contemplation of their roots their identity their culture and how arthur and his legends are bound up in all of that inextricably um what else do i want to say on that front not that much um
0: Let's talk about Peleus and Edira, Bill.
1: Yeah, let's, let's you, have a go at that.
0: You, when, when we were discussing what we would do today in relation to Tennyson, we agreed that we had to take on Tennyson and not leave him unremembered in our podcast. But what exactly would we do? Um, I suggested a shorter poem, um, more accessible. You suggested Idols of the King just simply because it's his greatest work and specifically mentioned Peleus and Edra. as mm-hmm. one we should focus on. Why did you choose that particular one? Um, I would have thought perhaps deal with the, the passing or death of Arthur or even the coming of Arthur, uh, but and Peleosonetra, how come? I mean, I read it this week and found it, uh, as you said, uh, hmm. quite subtle and magnificent and surprising above all. I did not anticipate what was going to happen. Um, yeah. And, and at, at points laughing out loud and at the same time feeling deeply pained at what I was reading. So yes. it's a terrific uh, psychological subtlety uh, in the lines.
1: Yeah, it's, I, I chose this particular story. I mean, in a perfect world, I would get my students to read the entire thing, but sure. of course we both know that they don't have that kind of time. Um, so I chose this one specifically because the entire Idils of the King um, is an exploration of how great societies fall and descend into disaster and anarchy and things like this and one of the uh, assumptions in the foreground uh, of the uh, of, of this series of tales. Is this notion that society descends into depravity barbarism and chaos as a natural state and the artificial state is when we impose structure and goodness and hope and righteousness and things like this upon the shape and the machinations of that society that we're living in victorian culture and society is like a gigantic complex clockwork machine um, it, and it's operating insofar as it's operating well it's operating well according to certain principles but those principles sooner or later will go wrong the machine will ultimately break and that's what we're watching here we're watching this, the machine of arthurian society break and we're exploring the process of breakage how does it all break down especially at the psychological spiritual moral and ethical level so it is a a long arc of a tale that's going to lead us to potentially if we're not careful despair um, at the end of it the great beautiful society that was that is to say uh, Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and all that they built in terms of their world is gone it falls apart and society reverts back to its natural state of barbarism anarchy and depravity um, and peleus and Etera catches a very interesting study in the arc there and specifically the arc that is traced and you were talking about the universal before and i think that's absolutely on on target here there tends to be a human un- nature yes exactly and, there, and we see in the young character of peleus a very typical universal trajectory. Um, uh, idealistic uh, young hero. Yeah, from innocence to experience to quote the Renaissance thinkers. And there's nothing new under the sun. And that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing here because we can explore it in new detail from a Victorian perspective. Peleus is a, an extremely idealistic young man mm-hmm. and his idealism articulates itself very, very cogently in the codes of chivalry and, uh, and courtliness. And so it is highly articulate and his expectations of himself and those around him are extremely, extremely high. So when I teach this, um, uh, this story to my students, I have many young people who are kind of in exactly this state where they're beginning to understand that there is evil in the world and there is evil in the people around them and there is evil in themselves. And now what do they do with this crisis? Any thinking young person undergoes this. And they have back since as far as we know, the dawn of time. Yeah. So one of the things that really resonates with my students is that they recognize much of what's happening here in the mind of Peleus as he undergoes one horrible turn after another and the humiliations that come along with that.
0: So briefly, so he's initiated or brought into the knights among so he's the the newest. Of the Knights of the Round Table, um, mm-hmm. idealistic, wants to be like Arthur and have a yes. Guinevere, a woman who is just like Guinevere, the paragon of virtue, beautiful, etc. So that that's how he begins, and he talks about wanting to meet a woman so that he too can live a life just like Arthur and Guinevere. And then revelations are made about Guinevere, and then revelations are made about the woman that he falls in love with, etc. And there's a gradual disenchantment going on in the mind of the character and it doesn't it begins with disenchantment it ends in uh, almost cynicism and despair yes uh, and and it's as i say it's humorous uh in episodes but it's also um because we feel his pain we can imagine ourselves in that situation perhaps we've been in that situation at least in some way um we feel the betrayal and it happens in quite rapid fashion uh in such a way though that is still plausible and uh and and memorable and and the keenness of his hurts are visited upon the reader um and and i could not help uh laughing at him in his um naivete but at the same time uh wishing that there would be a happy ending to his tale and it just got worse
1: no every time you think okay now the arc is going to start Yes, he's going to win the girl. She's going to to
0: fall for him in the end, and this will end with a happy ending. But No, no. and
1: there's a few things in here that are immediately striking. Again, my students who think they know a bit about the Victorian period are are shocked by this. One of the things is not the cynicism of Tennyson, because I don't think he is ever that.
0: No, he's not cynicism. No. uh,
1: No, but he is capable of oftentimes keen cutting and eloquent irony uh the victorians are far more ironic than a lot of people think uh the romantics can be almost painfully credulous all the way through uh breathlessly sincere (laughs) about some of the most absurd stuff um but the victorians uh, tend to be a little more measured and tennyson is typical of this and so when
0: uh, they're more english to be honest the romantics are not really typical of the english
1: yes i'm not sure what they are typical of um But with Peleus, um, um, when he's pining, as it were, for his Guinevere, the audience that Tennyson is writing for are well-versed enough in all things Arthurian. They know that Guinevere is famously um disloyal to her king king arthur uh she is being unfaithful with uh, arthur's greatest knight lancelot it's an open secret at certain points in the arthurian narrative everybody knows but nobody says that this is happening and arthur himself in many different iterations the mallory for instance knows but dares not say that his wife is being unfaithful to him with his favorite and best knight um, so, when Peleus is pining for his Guinevere, there you can imagine a, a grim but ironic smile spread across the face of many of the original readers. They know that this immediately. is...
0: Immediately.
1: The, yeah, they, they, they feel the pathos of that immediately. Um, we also have talked about uh, courtliness and chivalry as uh, affording us dynamics by which the knight will suffer through trials and he will go on hard difficult quests and things like this and there's a process of refinement which aligns very well with the processes of sanctification from within christian perspectives and yes a lot of the original writers in the high middle ages um, begin to explore and critique that as a possibility as, as a kind of chivalric refinement is it really a thing that is even possible um no maybe it isn't um Well, here also, we have that sort of assumption on the part of Peleus. He's going to hold to all these ideals. He admires the the Knights of the Round Table and their ethos enormously. And this is going to be a refining thing that builds him up in all sorts of different ways, amongst other things, as a chivalric and courtly lover uh, when he finally meets his Guinevere. So he's he's already ready to fall in love at the beginning. He's casting about looking to fall in love. Yeah. And there's an interesting psychological exploration waiting to happen right there. Um, what does it mean when a character or indeed a real life human being um, is desperate to fall in love and um, just needs to fill in the significant other to fulfill that need? What if that, that need precedes the actual meeting of the individual person? It's sort are of you... an
0: idol, right? He puts up an idol.
1: Yes. So are, are, are you actually in love with that person or are you in love with the idea of falling in love and that person you decide to love merely becomes a catalyst rather than the cause of that love? Is yeah. that problematic? Yeah. Tennyson is subtle enough that, yeah, he's thinking about all these things as he's writing the character of Peleus, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and in the end, so to give away the whole plot, um, he not only finds out that Guinevere has been unfaithful to Arthur, which outrages him. The mere suggestion of it make, fills him with rage. Mm-hmm. Um, but his uh, beloved Adara mocks him and and in a way that is manifest to everyone including him but he's going to remain faithful to her and win her over because of his fidelity etc because this is what a christian knight will do yes he does do that in comes sir gawain oh good sir gawain after all sir gawain the 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 truest Mm -hmm. of all knights we know him from the medieval period sir gawain the green knight he comes in he will win him he will win her for seretra within three days Soretus, or sorry, uh, Peleus comes then upon the two in bed together. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At which point he is disconsolate, outraged, um, uh, broken. He uh, comes and is furious and then uh, I think comes to uh, Guinevere, comes upon Lancelot, in fact, claiming that she is untrue. Lancelot then. Challenges him to a duel, and unfortunately, then the poor Pelias is beat down uh, by Lancelot, and uh, it's it's a terrible ending for a man who began with such high hopes that he's beaten into the ground by a man who who lacks honor um, and yet is great in the world, the uh, eyes of the world. Uh, so it, it it finishes very bleakly. Um, yeah, but talk about the realism.
1: Yeah, it's well. There's so many things to talk about here. Um, as we said, Pellias starts with this idealism. Uh, he's on his way um, to Camelot. At a certain point, he's been made a knight of the Round Table, as you say. And they're filling in the numbers, by the way. Here, in the they are, and, and they
0: sort of they sort of give him a soft treatment to get into the knights as well. Uh, they're, yeah, they're, they're bringing what's... him along as a protege. He's not really up to it yet.
1: Yeah, because they've suffered heavy casualties in the pursuit of some quests and, and things of this sort. Uh, nevertheless, uh, he's in the forest. He's full of idealism. He's uh, ready to fall in love with uh, the first woman who seems to be a decent fit. Disastrously, he encounters Etara and her ladies and her her accompanying knights and her, her entire entourage. And she's
0: infamous as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that there's as villainous a female antagonist in the victorian period in victorian literature or let's call it 19th century literature except with the possible exception of lady D winter from uh, the three musketeers yeah. um but edora is a monster and she's an enormously complicated monster um when it comes to character studies she's she's great she is cynical mercenary uh exploitive sadistic, subtle. Uh, I've got a little passage here. When she first meets Pelias in the forest, he's sleeping under a tree, he gets up, he meets her. They're lost. Uh, Etera and her people are lost, and they're casting about. Right. They cannot find their way to where, their destination. Pelias knows where that is. But Pelias is so struck by Ettera that his poor social skills, his, his courtliness lets him down disastrously. Etara mocks this subtly to her friends. So they have an inside mean girls joke. But, yeah, 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 and they mean to exploit and ridicule uh, uh, Peleus. Mm-hmm. And there's this great little passage. I'm going to just read it right now, if I may. Um, this is Ettera. This is a description of Etra watching this stammering young man desperately trying to offer his services to guide them to their destination. And she realizes what sort of a young idealistic man she has in front of her and what opportunity for... Uh, for sport she and her friends now have. Then with a slow smile turned the lady round and looked upon her people and as when a stone is flung into some sleeping tarn the circle widens till it lipped the marge. Spread the slow smile through all her company. Three knights were there among and they too smiled scorning him for the lady was a Tara and she was a great lady in her land. They're gonna have some fun. And you can see it on the expression of their faces as they exchange. We've got a country art.
0: bumpkin here. Let's have some fun. Yeah. Oh,
1: yes. Oh, yes. And she just gets worse from here, people. Yeah. Um, again, plot spoiler, but of course, these are great works of literature. If you can't reread these a dozen times over, then perhaps they shouldn't be rated as great literature. So I don't mind plot spoilers.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: She convinces them him to guide them to Camelot, which he does. There's a competition there, and she insists that. Uh, Peleus win her the circulate, so she'd be the great lady. Guinevere and Ettore have this kind of a moment of um, bristling recognition. They recognize their type of reflection of each other, right. as it were. Guinevere does a better job of it than Ettera, but nevertheless, Two Peleus does... <laughs> yes, exactly. And Peleus does win the circulate for uh, Ettore. Uh, and uh, she gets. At which it.
0: point she never looks upon him again with uh, Like she, uh, the sun was before, and now it never looks but with a cloudy uh, visage upon him again. I think something like That's that.
1: That's right. Yeah, overwhelming contempt and ridicule. Now it becomes open, and nevertheless, rather pathetically. And this might be where you began uh, chortling to yourself at the ridiculousness of the young man's antics. Uh, he follows her back to her castle. Um, and, and hangs
0: about outside the gate. Yeah, AAs like a, and we, yeah,
1: he's, he's 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 like this pathetic petitioner. He's he's in some senses, you, you can almost sense where Ettera's contempt is coming from.
0: or she but, gets angry, she gets not, she gets first contempt, then she's outraged
1: that he's yes. still there. And she sends individual knights out to sort him, him out, yeah. and he beats the snot out of him. <laughs> um, so that didn't work. Um, and uh, it begs another question what is fueling her hatred. hatred for Peleus? And I would argue his that goodness. it's his goodness. And not only that, he loves something she knows is not worthy of love. She knows her loathsomeness uh, and, and horribleness and Peleus's adoration of she who does not deserve that love throws it into sharp relief and drives her wild as she is yep. forced to look In into fact, the mirror.
0: Gawain mentions that very thing about her to her and the two of them, in their cynicism, take delight in the fact that she isn't that and Gowing knows that she isn't that and he, and she knows that he isn't that either. So those two are hypocrites of the first order, but they both take delight uh, in despising goodness. It's awful. It's,
1: it's Yes, and, but it's also extremely psychologically complex. Accurate. I mean, we could just unpack this for the rest of the day, but we don't have time, sadly. But you're right, there's a bond it of mocking cynicism. About it
0: that it's the sadism, though, that you noted. There it is.
1: Yes, exactly. They, they want to have some vicious fun uh, at his expense. But what makes it even more complex is that in time, Peleus himself realizes who Ettara is. And here's the interesting bit. Does not cease to love her. Why not? He sees her now, warts and all, um, but his love does not abate. Uh, it morphs into something homicidal and dangerous, as Lancelot uh, and, and the rest of the court of Camelot will find out. Yeah. But as you say, um, he is, she, sets, she allows all her knights to be set upon him. He is dragged in front of her. He's mocked. He's stripped of his equipment and stuff like this. He's cast out again. He sees them, uh, and, and Gawain sees all this going on. Gawain says, as you said, he's going to intercede. He's going to help young uh, Gawain, or sorry, young Peleus out. And the first time I read this, like you, I was shocked by the turn of events. Oh, here.
0: Oh,
1: uh, like I was used to the standard uh, treatment yeah, so was I.
0: I. I was totally shocked.
1: And Tennyson knows that. Ten- this is another thing that takes Tennyson away from those cliches about Victorians and Victorian authors specifically. They're very capable of shock value. And it takes somebody who's pretty flexible with the norms and expectations of the ethical and aesthetic world to be able to pull off shock well. And Tennyson is able to shock you well. He's not a stodgy, um, Victorian, uttering, weary, aesthetic and ethical cliches, not at all. Um, and so Gawain is this horrible betrayer. As you said, uh, pellius discovers them sleeping somnambulant in each other's arms. And he takes his sword and he a, lays a, it across heart. their chest. He, I was here, you know what I could have done. And one of the questions I have, to which the, I don't have a good answer, is if all if he's realized that all of chivalry and courtliness is a sham, is a disgusting, cynical lie by which certain people get ahead in the world, why does he not behave dishonorably here and just strike? Um, but he doesn't, and this brings me back to an earlier like point. Some,
0: this makes him honorable and better than them. In the end, he truly is, right?
1: He is, but, and yet he becomes one of the great villains of Arthurian literature. Peleus is the great and terrible Red Knight of other Arthurian tales. Peleus becomes one of the worst. He was one of the best, and that disillusionment has now made him one of the worst. If he's going to be bad, he's going to go all in, and he becomes that Red Knight figure. Another plot spoiler. Um, but this goes back to my earlier point. Knightly valor, worth, honor... Um, are things which are built up in a uh, process that seems to be interwoven in many imaginations with sanctification from within a christian perspective but so also can we see the de-evolution of a person's character in an opposite sort of a process and i would say that his the fall of peleus is not sudden and again this is another point of psychological realism This is a process as sanctification was a process and refinement was a process. So his descent into his own specific brand of cynicism and things like this is a gradual thing as it dawns upon him and he connects all the dots and he realizes that everything everywhere is rotten. Um, That is the opposite of that process. And I think that's very interesting. And this is another reason I teach this tale because this in miniature um mimics the overall arc of the ideals of the king there's a process here it's not a sudden thing um and i think that's quite an astute judgment also of the decay of culture tennyson knows this as well it's not like all of a sudden one thing happens culturally or historically or something like this and a civilization, a civilization crashes and burns no it's a process so let's explore the process what drives the process what are the outcomes of the process what are the warning flags of the process as they are with an individual on a micro scale what are they on a macro scale for an entire culture like victorian culture
0: mm.
1: and i think if people have been reading tennyson a little more carefully they would be a little bit less shocked by the apocalypse that came at the end of it world war one or the great yeah, war.
0: Kind of, I, I wanted to so later in the the idles, um, just to add So reading this one tale, one gets a a clear sense from what we've just said of a richness in uh, Tennyson's vision and awareness of how corruption happens um, and a willingness to depart from his sources to uh, present that in ways that are almost scandalous uh, and certainly shocking. Um, But he portrays terrific goodness in it as well. And that really is, it's not the... uh, it's the the tones are not that, and you mentioned this, of bleak melancholy, um, which is associated with Tennyson, and rightly so, as you said. There there is a deep melancholy, a brooding sense of uh, of of. Uh, contemplation but also of loss there uh, about something that's passing away but still there are notes of hope and expectation I, I wanted to read just this short passage from the passing of arthur this is the death of arthur and the there is a good knight left and his name is uh sir Badevere, uh, the truest of all the knights and he is looking on the demise of that whole kingdom of camelot and he sees in the death of arthur um the passing away of a companion and he is left on his own and says, and I, the last, go forth companionless and the days darken round me and the years among new men, strange faces, other minds. And Arthur responds, and and this this was once, I understand, read at commencements or even at uh, um, eulogies and so forth. Arthur says, the old order changeth, yielding place to new, and God fulfills himself in many ways, lest one good custom should corrupt the world. Pray for my soul. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. Wherefore, let thy voice rise like a fountain for me night and day. For what are men better than sheep or goats that nourish a blind life within the brain If, knowing God, they lift not hands of prayer, both for themselves and those who call them friend. Uh, If those are the words of a man who has no uh, sense of Christian conviction, um, I find that myself rather doubtful. These seem to be the words of a stout Christian soul. Um, In response to that, if it's not Tennyson's soul, it's one that he can easily imagine and find some solace in. Um, So, as you say that, at the very least, we have a complexity uh, in Tennyson's poetry, which I think uh, recommends him to anyone who wants to read uh, good literature by someone who is rarely uh, mentioned, let alone uh, advocated for these days.
1: Yeah, um, we have to remember that Tennyson as a young man, not even as a middle aged or or an uh, older individual spent 17 years thinking long and deeply about death and loss uh, this is this is the stuff of in memoriam and so this is somebody who has gone places mentally and emotionally i would imagine uh that many people never go and and so his understanding of how the faith factors into that is very very interesting to me what do you if, you, if you're done with uh, cheap shallow platitudes How exactly do you grapple with the problem of death and the face, especially when you've experienced that loss individually with the person you can name with the person who you knew with with Arthur. We're going to see this with a couple of other late Victorian poets as well, but we're not at that point here, I I hit my students usually at this point with a whole barrage of questions to which I don't give them answers. We've already mentioned that um, Etra knows herself to be loved undeservedly, and this drives, it fans the flames of her cynicism and hate and all this stuff, and at times, as you say, just plain anger. Um, but in other senses, it begs the question of us, the reader, are we, all of us, in certain ways, loved undeservedly or not worthy of these loves that oftentimes come to us in our life? Um, do we get angered when people appreciate and or love us and value us for things we don't think we necessarily deserve is our response in some senses like etera. Um, yeah. We've got um, questions about, well, we've got a question about a, a great range of other things um, that we don't really have time for. No, so
0: yeah, that, I was going to say that I, I think you, there's such, there's such a, depth and and uh interest in this story we we can talk about this a great deal but i'm wondering if we've actually given the, enough there to wet the appetites of our listeners
1: i should hope so yeah but i mean there's there's other things we could talk about regarding the moral loneliness of Pelias at the end of the story he's not just lonely in terms of companionship he's morally lonely yes, he's the it. only one who thinks that those codes even though shattered and in ruins, were and ought to be authoritative. He, he never ditches that, and I think that speaks well to uh, Tennyson's sensibility as a writer. Um, Good. So we've got that to consider here as well, and also the necessities of. In fact, his his rage, his homicidal rage at the end of this story, actually speaks to his character. People who uh, have no codes to which they believe integrity ought to be owed, don't get outraged. People with no integrity don't get outraged. People who don't believe in the, tr- in the validity of the codes they live by don't get outraged. They smile cynically like Gawain and Ettera, and to some extent Guinevere and Lancelot and all the rest of them. Mm-hmm. So I've got time for people who get outraged about certain issues in life. Even if I point blank disagree with them, at least they believe in a code. Um, or still believe in a code it's the quiet smiling cynic that I worry about the person who is incapable of getting outraged you can say the most horrible things in their presence you know they disagree with them and they just smile blandly at you that's the person that puts me on high alert anyway we could talk about all of that as uh, I've said as you've said Uh, hopefully this is enough to whet some appetites we are going to be moving on with our next podcast into something very very different uh and I'm really quite excited about this we're going to start talking about great russian authors of the 19th and maybe to some extent if we get really lucky in the 20th century later on uh and the writer in front of us is dostoevsky and I think you and I have settled on crime and punishment one of these ah, towering I saw you? Towering that, did you? Oh,
0: okay good yes
1: well you were petitioning and I was cogitating <laughs> up thereupon and I thought okay fine we'll do it because i've got all the all the world enough in time um (laughs) i have read crime and punishment so long ago but i've got to catch up and drag it off my bookshelf where it's it's literally quite dusty uh but the russians give us some fascinating fascinating texts at this time and um, i've always been interested in Reading them, I've never had the opportunity to teach them, which to me is a great regret. Uh, and I know that a lot of other people who come across Russian literature, once you've had a taste, these people usually become addicted to Russian literature. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, Dovstoyevsky is just one of these individuals uh, who gives us that um, but I do think that that brings us to the end of our time today. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, again, thank you for listening. We really appreciate uh, the time, and uh, it's very gratifying for us to be able to give something back to the wider community. I am Dr. Bill Friesen, and this is Dr. Scott Masson for Paidea Today. Everyone take care, and we will speak to you presently in and
0: on. Bye for now.